Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 91 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 18th of November 2012, entitled The Glorious Church of Jesus Christ, Part 23. And the Bible readings are taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47, and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 23 to 40. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. We'll read first of all from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. I invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's precious and holy word. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. They, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God. And having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 23, the Word of God says, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, Will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. Thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God, and report that God is in you of a truth. How is it then, brethren? When you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophets speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, Let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are 
the commandments of the Lord. If any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Father, we do thank you again so much this morning that we can be gathered together here in your house in this place. Lord, and we are here for the purpose, Lord, that you might be lifted high in our midst, that you might be magnified and glorified in all that we do. Lord, in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, Lord, in your scriptures that we have read, and now, Lord, as we look to you for the power that is needed and necessary for the preaching of your word here today. Also, Father, for that power that can only come from you, that, Lord, can touch the hearts of each individual here, or whatever their purpose in coming, or whatever their reason, whatever it is that might be upon their minds at this time, we pray that you would take, Lord, and that you would get their attention, and that through the preaching of your word, Lord, that the lost might be saved, the backslider restored, the Christian strengthened and challenged and build up that each and every one of us, Lord, might leave here today in some way more like our Savior. We'll give you the praise and thanks for it. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. I know that I've said it many times, and I would say it again this morning. God's Word is awesome. We began to read and study God's Word and allow it to speak to our hearts. It's awesome all that is there and all that God will speak to us through it. And of course, I find as many times in trying to study God's Word and to prepare a sermon that God has given to us for these times that we come together like this morning, and it's an amazing thing because, you know, I begin to look at many of these things we've been talking, of course, uh, for quite some time now on the contending for the faith. You know, because sadly, we live in a day when so many Christians, people that are saved and on their way to heaven, they don't know how to defend their faith. They don't know why they believe what they believe. Many of them not even sure what they believe on many of the foundational doctrines of Scripture. As Christians, we need to be strong. We need to be strong in the faith. We need to be able to give an answer. We need to be able to tell people why that we believe the things that we believe. And of course, as we've looked, and I think we're up to Sermon 91 or something like that now in this series, we find that... You know, there's some things that people just want to fight about that aren't really important. They're not worth dividing over. There are some things that are foundational and fundamental that you can't disagree on and be part of the same faith. We've also seen that there's some things that are important to us as a local church, that we be in one mind and one accord, that it might be very important to you in choosing a church that you want to be a part of that oneness of that body. But those things, though they're important to us, and they're important for very good reasons, doesn't make everybody else a heretic because they believe differently. It's been quite some years back, I was trying to remember, and I don't remember how long it's been. I know that it was probably back sometime, sometime in the mid-90s or somewhere along in there that I did a 
whole series on the subject that we're talking about now because uh, now in the uh, uh, part of this series that we're in, we're looking at the glorious church of Jesus Christ. We're in our 23rd series on that part and, and, and in the fourth on the operation of that New Testament church. Now think about the third on the subject that we're continuing to look at today as we look at the functions of the church. We've looked at all these things, and you see they're important because so many people today, they don't realize just how glorious that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is and God himself. He gives us the instructions because it is Jesus Christ himself that's building his church. He's the one that's got the blueprint, and it's his blueprint that we follow. And, of course, on just so many of these things, we take, think about the subject of worship which is what we're looking at now. You know, we, we began by trying to say, okay, when it comes to the operation of the church, we have to go back to the very focus of everything that we do. And that's that God might be glorified. In all that we do, in everything that we are, in everything that we do, our focus must always be His glory. It's not what it'll do for me. It's not whether I like it or dislike it. When we move from that to the functions of that church, and as we said, as we began to talk about those functions, that, that, you know, when we begin to look at this idea of worship, why did we begin there? Because, you know, we probably spend more time together as a body in these meetings just like we are here this morning when our primary purpose is worshiping our God. It's hard to find a specific definition for worship, but I, I said if you try to simplify it, really it's coming before God and Him being in such a place of reverence in our hearts and our minds that we look at Him in His splendor and we're in a, we're in a sense of awe before him and, and all that he is and, and who that he is. We get it turned around so many times. We want to come for what it will do for me. You see, the truth is, as we put God first, as we truly adore him, too many times we are missing such blessings. And I guess this was the one of the things as I began to study God's word and I began to, to get excited. I'm trying to do these things. And like always, I mean, it's like, you know, I'm seeing all these things and I'm saying, no, I don't have time for all that. And I start cutting off here and cutting off there and we can only go so far, but just the whole matter and all that the Bible says we saw last week that the very first time that we see worship in our Bibles was when Abraham was about to take Isaac up on the mountain. They were going there to worship God. We find that the very first time that worship is mentioned in the New Testament is at the entrance of our Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> when the wise men went to worship him as a baby, as a child. So we find that, of course, in the Old Testament, that time of worship was a time when it was all symbolic of the Christ that was to come in the New Testament when he came. That worship was a reality there. He said as we try to, to understand, and of course last week we looked at that passage in John chapter 4 where he talks about 
They that worship, true worshipers that worship him must worship him in what? In spirit and in truth. We talked about what it meant to worship in spirit and in truth. So as we move forward today, and we think about that worship, I want us just to focus on some of the elements because here, here's the thing, folks. We're not here for a lecture. We're not here to get over technology. That's part of the problem with worship today is that man has got all of his ideas and it's all there. And the simple truth is this. I don't say this to be mean. I want to say this because there's so much that you get can get from God. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. Sometimes I almost, don't take this wrong, Romani, I just kind of try to blank you out a lot of times when I'm up here preaching, when I'm up here leading the worship. Why? Because it breaks my heart when that we are worshiping God. And I see people talking and chatting and doing this and doing that, and their minds are on everything out there. And we saw last week, you can't worship like that, folks. That's not what, you see, too many times we come just to have church. But we don't come to put him in the place that he needs to be. And we've already seen that everything that we do should be for his glory. We find as we begin to look at the elements of worship and what we're here for, and we talked about what it meant to worship in spirit and in truth. True spirit, true worship can only come from within. We said even, even theologians, they would, they would take and debate over whether that word spirit right there, we know that the first one, God is a spirit, Holy Spirit, capital S. But then it says that they must worship him in spirit and in truth. In our spirit, we're in the Holy Spirit. And we try to pull that together to say, really, when it comes to worship, it should be one and the same. You should be filled with the Holy Spirit. You should be yielded to the Holy Spirit. Your spirit should be being controlled by the Holy Spirit. The truth is that it must come from within. It must come from the heart. All the functions that we're going to talk about that the church do, it really doesn't matter if it's just being done mentally, if it's just being done because it's what we've always done, if we're not genuine, if it's not from our hearts, then it can't be true worship and truth. I said there's two things there that I think we find are supported in Scripture. Number one, when you talk about him and his truth, there is only one truth. We looked at the fact that he was that truth. We look at the fact that if we're going to worship him, there can't be anything false about us. It can't be some kind of make-believe, made-up something, but it must be based upon the Word of God. So as we begin to look at these elements of worship, as we keep in mind that the focus of the church in everything is upon the glory of God, bringing glory and honor to him, and certainly if that's true of everything in our lives, that's our, our end goal, then the truth is, is that's got to be true in our worship as well. We've already seen that it's, it really is not about us. Too many people go to church for how it makes them feel. It's not about our feelings. We've seen it's not even about our likes and our dislikes. In fact, True worship is not about man at all. It's all about God. 
It's about coming into his presence with that wonder of his awe and splendor and all that he is. We're seeing that there is nothing that man can do in his natural self to achieve true worship. We can't work it up. We can't build it up. If we're going to worship him, the Bible doesn't give it as an option. It says, must worship him in spirit and in truth and all that that entails. It's got to come from a true heart, free from all the superficiality, free from all that's not truth, but it's got to be consistent with God's truth, with the true word of God that he's revealed to us and that he's preserved for us and that we have with us today. As we turn our attention to exactly what the elements, the parts that make up that worship, what do we do in our times of worship to achieve what we've seen that, that worship should be? Assuming that we've got our focus right and our, and our purpose and our hearts and our basis and even the means through the Holy Spirit. Assuming that's all in order. What should we do when we come together? How should we spend this time together that is there for worship? Well, one thing that has been generally accepted by the more conservative, particularly our, our, our Baptist forefathers over the centuries, is that we believe that worship should be guided by what is known as the regulative principle. What does that mean, preacher? Well, simply, it means that our worship should be regulated not by us, not by men, not by any organization, but that our worship should be regulated implicitly and explicitly by the Word of God, totally and completely. It should only include those elements that are found in the Word of God, not what somebody considers to be appropriate. You see, there's many today and others that would hold to what is known as the normative principle. And basically what that says without going into a great detail is that if it's not forbidden in Scripture, it's okay. In other words, if the Bible doesn't say don't do it, then you're free to do whatever as long as it's not forbidden in Scripture. But I don't believe that that's the way that God teaches us that just because he doesn't tell us not to do something doesn't mean that it's right. But he's the one that's building his church. He's the one that has given us his word it should be what his word teaches us that is right and correct in worship. Our preference for including only those elements that are given to us scripturally, that really would just come as a natural consequence or it should for those that have a strong desire to be biblical in everything that they do. You see, it's kind of like in our Christian lives. You've heard me say before that so many times the Christian can be guilty of going through life living in such a way just not to upset God so that he doesn't bring down a bolt of lightning upon you. 
so that it's okay rather than going through life trying to see what can I do today to be more like my Savior. It's not just being okay with him. It's not just avoiding his chastisement. It's about being more like him every day that we live. That same kind of truth should come through in our worship. It's not what can we get away with, what's okay because God hasn't brought. What has God taught us in his word are the things that are acceptable to him that he desires, that he wants, that he points out to us will bring true worship to him. For the most part, through our church history, again, most of our Baptist churches have never been real fond of liturgy when it comes to written prayers and written confessions and written responses and things like that. There's nothing that says those things are wrong. It's not that writing those things down are wrong in and of themselves, but it stems more from the danger of those things becoming too mechanical of being too unmeaningful, of, of, of losing the meaning that is written there within them. But, you know, it's possible, it's possible to read something, and as you read something, for it to find a resting place in your heart. But it becomes much more challenging to read something that someone else has written, and it truly originates from your heart as worship must do. You see, there's a real danger of just reading words, that even those words may be true, but they're not really having any meaning whatsoever. We find that that in itself would violate that principle that we've already seen of necessity, true worship being in spirit and in truth. But just because it's done extemporaneously as we like to just go along and and do it as we go, that doesn't mean that it's going to be of spirit and truth either, just because it's not written down. Things can be done and said for all kinds of reasons that don't represent true worship. It's simple. We've got to always keep in mind that whatever we do, unless it's originating from our heart, it's not worship. It can't be true worship. And we've just got to be careful that in the things that we do, you see, sometimes we can quickly point our finger and say that, well, they're not really worshiping because they've just got everything written down and they're just reading through it. But in fact, It is possible for somebody that's reading through that to mean more than what we're saying or doing that's not written down if our hearts are not in it. You see, that's not what makes it. What we've got to understand and realize, yes, we have a reason why that we do it the way that we do it. But just doing it that way in and of itself doesn't make it worship. It doesn't even make it better. We're simply trying to avoid some of the dangers. We want it to come from the hearts. As we begin to think on some of these things today, 
The passage that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we've got some guiding principles there. Remember, the church at Corinth, they had some good people, some good things. They had all kind of gifts at work. But boy, there was a lot of confusion in that church. There was sin in that church that wasn't being dealt with. There was carnalness in that church. And so we end up with a lot of regulation, things teaching the church because these things are wrong. This is the way it should be. That's not the way it should be. We find that in our reading here today, God gives us some important principles as we consider what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. How can worship be real to us? How can it be meaningful to us? How can it be a time that we come together and it's not just to sit there and get through something? It's not to sit there and wonder about this and think about this and, and talk to this person and talk to that person. And I'm talking about to have true worship. Folks, when you're in the presence of the true splendor of God, those other things are not going to be on your mind. They're distractions. They're what takes you away from worship. And what takes away all that it should be for you. We find as we begin reading here in, in, in verse 23 that in the very first part, he says, if therefore the whole church be come together in one place. He's talking about the church being assembled together in one place, just like we are right here this morning. And of course, as they are all gathered together as we are in that one place as a church, he goes on, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers. Will they not say that you're mad? We're not gonna, we've, we've talked about tongues and all this before and the time for it and what it was for. Back in Acts chapter 2, the gift of tongues, it brought understanding to everybody that was present. Everybody there understood in their own language. That's when it came down on the day of Pentecost. At Corinth... The Bible is saying here when he, when he talks about people thinking that you're mad, he's talking, and that word literally means an uncontrolled frenzy. They're going to think you've just gone stark raving mad that you don't have any control over what you're doing or what you think or what you are. You're just a bunch of crazy people. You see, at Corinth, even when the gift of tongues as a sign gift that was given to the apostles, it was given at Pentecost, even if that gift were still in operation, it sure wasn't meant to be used the way that they were using it. You know, he says, you're going to discredit everything else you're doing because when those that are unlearned or those that are not believers, when they come in, what are they going to think of this mess that's going on here? They're going to think you're mad, he said. Did they mean what they were doing? Listen, folks, I've said before, I have got dear, dear, dear Christian friends that I believe as sure as we're sitting here this morning, we're going to walk the streets of glory one day together. But we've had some deep discussions on some of these things, and we disagree. We disagree on what we believe that the Bible is teaching us about these things. That doesn't make them not a Christian. It does mean this. I wouldn't feel comfortable worshiping with them in the kind of mess that was going on at Corinth there. 
they probably wouldn't want to worship with me. They'd think I was just dead and dried up. And, you know, I said, unless we, you know, some, sometimes as, as, as dead as last year's dried up burden is. Truth is, is that we're not talking about salvation here. He's talking about the way they should be acting in church and the things they should be doing in church. And he said, what in the world is this? Don't you understand that if you're doing this, those that are unlearned, those that are unbelievers, they're going to come in, they're going to think you're mad. And then what does he go on to say? But if all prophesy and there come in one that believeth not or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will, what? Worship God. He will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. He said, on the other hand, prophecy, that telling forth of God's word. He says, that's going to bring learning and that's going to bring conviction in the heart and that's going to bring true worship that will evidence God's presence there in you. When they come in, they see you doing this thing over here, they're going to think you're a bunch of crazies. But if they come in and God's word is being proclaimed forth, he said, they're going to learn from that. And they're going to be convicted of their sins from that. And that's going to change the word. Then they will truly worship. They're going to fall down and worship God because they're going to see the true presence of God in you and in your midst. You see, we have our first principle that I believe he's giving us there. Regardless of what he might be teaching with right and wrong, what he's saying is that God's word must be central to all that we do. God's word must always remain central to everything that we do because it's the only thing that can speak to the unlearned, to the unbeliever. It's the only thing that can change the hearts of men. So principle in everything that we do, folks, whatever we do, and we're going to be looking at all these different elements that we go through, whether it's the, the singing or the praying or the preaching and all these different things that are part of our services. There's a principle that's being taught very clearly here. God's Word is what's going to change hearts. God's Word is what needs to be present in everything that you do. And notice verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together Every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. And we know there was a lot of disorder in this church in the way that they were using the very gifts of the Holy Spirit that had been given to them. We know that there were a lot of things going on, some of them good, some of them not so good. Some of them downright bad. But he's giving us a principle here. Notice he's talking about, he goes through this whole list of things, and he doesn't bother to pause what's right and what's wrong amongst any of them individually. But you come together, and one of you's got a song, and one of you's got a doctrine, a teaching, and another one's got a tongue, another one's got a revelation, another one's got an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. You've got all these different things. But the second principle, not only should God's Word remain central in everything that we do, 
the proclaiming forth of his word, but all things should be done for edification. You see, the things that we do when we're gathered together, we see as we go on, he, he exasperated on this more, but they should bring understanding, not confusion, to bring edification. Edification, I mean, it, it's a word that literally means instruction and learning, teaching. He says, all these things that you're doing, they should be bringing a greater understanding to the body, not to be confused about the matters. So first principle, God's word must remain central. Secondly, all things should be done for edification. Verses 27 to 31 he goes into some specific instructions. If any man speak in any unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three and that by course and let one interpret. If there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophet speak two or three and let the, the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. You see, he's giving us another principle. He's talking about the use of these gifts that were taking place in the church, the prophecy and the tongues and the things that were going on. But he said, the focus on God's Word in an orderly manner will bring learning and comfort. These things that you're doing, he said, you know, you know, do it in an orderly fashion. Do it in a way to where that it makes sense and it brings understanding, not confusion. It'll bring comfort to people. He goes on to say in verses 32 to 33, he said, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Those who receive me for God, you know, whatever it is, and we've, you know, we did a whole thing way back in this series on the Holy Spirit, on the, on the gifts of the Spirit and whatnot at that point. Whatever we're receiving from God, and when it's God's word of, of, of revelation and, and helping us to teach, when we're receiving from God and, and proclaiming forth those truths then to others, He's saying here, you're not to be out of control. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, the spirits of those that are speaking for God are subject to them. They're not losing control. They're not in some kind of a, a frenzy or a, or a trance or something that they go into. They've got control, and you should have control. He goes on then in that next verse saying, For God is not the author of confusion. That's another principle. God is not the author of confusion. He brings peace and harmony, not confusion to any church. And the things are being done for God. In verse 34 and 35, he says, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Some controversial verses. 
and to how that those things are supposed to be applied. Well, I know that uh, there's lots of different opinions. First um, Timothy chapter two uh, gives us more understanding on that on that same matter. First Timothy chapter two, and again, remember Paul is writing to Timothy in the context of the order of the church and the officers within those churches and the things that, that should be taking place in those churches. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he tells us this in verses 9 to 15. He says, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. That's one that's not preached and taught and learned much today, is it? <laughs> modest apparel. They should dress in a way that they don't draw attention to their sexuality. You know, the world would have us to think that somehow it's how sexy you look that requires how beautiful that you are and how attractive you are. But in actual fact, that's not the case at all. And godly women and Christian ladies should dress in, in, in modest apparel, in things that shouldn't be so tight that it shows off your your creases and your wrinkles and everything else through it. It shouldn't be so loose that it allows things to be seen through. It should be modest. It should be clothing that does not in any way draw attention to you physically. In like manner, let the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Well, don't try to stand out with all these, these gaudy things and everything, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, that sounds an awful lot about what we remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The church was gathered together all in one place. And when they were gathered together as a church, folks, I didn't make this up. And Paul's going to show us, you know, there's a lot of people that say he was just, you know, a male chauvinist. And he, he thought he was better than the women and he just put the women down and all that. Well, he'll cover that in just a minute. But I'm saying to you, the Bible is saying this. The Bible is saying that let the women keep silence. Let them learn from their own husbands. We find that in chapter 2, he says, I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, is that because that the man is more spiritual than the woman? Is that because the man can do a better job? I'll guarantee you. <laughs> I don't have any idea. I don't have any false ideas that there's not some women out there that could get up here and do a far better job than me as far as their ability to deliver and their, their thing. I'm not so sure that, that you can credit the work of the Holy Spirit coming to the... It's not because they can't do it. It's not because they're less smart. It's not because they're less spiritual. Matter of fact, just in case we were wondering, why would God say that? Why would God do that? Well, he says in the next verse, in verse 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, why? 
For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, Paul is writing this to Timothy in the first century about the action of these women in the church, that they should not teach nor assert authority over the man. And it has nothing to do with spirituality or ability. He says it goes back, you know, we have to back up really 4,000 years uh, to Genesis chapter 3. And if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says there in verse 16, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Unto the woman he said, who said? God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. What did he say there in verse 15 of 1 Timothy Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety. You see, folks, it's got nothing to do with who can do it best. Back from the first sin in the Garden of Eden, God has a specific order. He has an order for men and women and the different roles that they are. And I mean, I know that gets kind of mixed up today. And, and the reality is, is that we live in a day when that the role of a man and a woman aren't vital anymore. That's not what's necessary to make a family anymore. But God's definition of a family is a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And that is the only way that this world can continue to be as those children are then reproduced through a mom and a dad. God has a role and the man can't be the woman and the woman can't be the man and God has a role for them. You see, we have another principle here for whatever we're doing. God has a specified role for men and for women. And in the church, he's the one that says it's the man that's to be doing the leading, the teaching, the preaching, not because he can do it better. No, he's supposed to be doing that, even though you know you can do it better. <laughs> even though he's doing it a whole lot worse than you could do it. Because right back since the first man and woman, God has an order. He said to Timothy, that's why it's like this in the church, because of what took place in the Garden of Eden, because of the roles that he gave to men and women back then. Folks, that's not popular in churches today. And I'll assure you that there's some people that if they choose to listen to this on the internet, they'll be stark raving mad at me for even saying these things. I'm not saying them. I'm reading the Word of God to you. I'm expounding upon what God has said in His Word. The truth is, there is a vital role, and one role is not more important than the other. The woman is the completer of the man. They each have their roles in life, and they each have their roles within the church and that's God's order, and he has a reason for doing it that way. And it's not for us. Matter of fact, you know, Paul was clever enough to know 
that everybody wasn't going to like him saying that. <laughs> they weren't going to like it when he wrote it to the church at Corinth. They weren't going to like it when he wrote it to Timothy. And they were going to try to figure out some way for it not to mean what it says. Well, what does he, what does he say there in verses 36 to 38? He says, what? Came the word of God out from you? Or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if a man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Paul knew that he was going to get some resistance on this one. And so he actually just turns a bit sarcastic with them to prove his point. He's challenging those that would either ignore it and say, well, that doesn't apply to us. That was a different culture. You know, he didn't tell Timothy he was doing this because this is right in our culture. He said because of what happened back in the Garden of Eden. Paul knew that. He knew that many would try to interpret the Scriptures with their own biases, their own likes or dislikes to make it fit into what they want, what seemed reasonable to them, what they thought would be fair. You see, if they were truly doing what they were doing for God, he says, then you should acknowledge that this is God, God's commandments. You sub submit yourself accordingly to God's words. If they weren't willing to do so, he said they're showing their ignorance. God said it. It's that simple. And he said, you know, that if they want to be ignorant, let them be ignorant. Let them be recognized as such. Don't allow what they're doing to affect what's right with God. We find that in writing to Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, notice what the Word of God says here. 2 Peter chapter 1, he says in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You know, if we begin to take and remove the bits and pieces that we don't like, that we don't understand, that we don't rationalize, folks, I'm not being mean. I'm just saying... Hey, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. That's not what's taught in a lot of places. It's not what's practiced in a lot of places. But if we're going to act like God wants us to act when we come together, he's given us this principle. And we need to be willing to follow that principle. We find that God's word is final. And it's not to be changed. It's not to be overridden. It's not to be discounted by man for any reason. 
an important principle when we're coming together as a church. If God speaks on the subject, we've got to listen to him. We've got to obey him, whether we fully understand it or not. Verse 39 and 40, he says, Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. He said, the greatest gift that you can desire is the gift to prophesy, the gift to be able to proclaim forth God's word, to speak forth God's word. There's lots of other gifts in this case, he's talking about tongues, which he's already taught us was the least gift of all. So whether it's at the top or whether it's at the bottom, you know, you got let God's gifts operate. But he said the greatest is for God to use you to speak forth his word. And when you put that principle with the other principles that he's always taught, that that's got to be central, that that's what changes the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. The telling forth of God's word has got to be at the forefront of all that we do and desire. He says there in verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. God's a God of order. And he desires the same for us. He wants us to act in an orderly fashion. He's not the author of confusion. He doesn't bring chaos to a place. In all of this, we see that when the, when the church is assembled together, that God desires for His Word to be central in everything that we do. That means in the music that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, in the thoughts that are on our mind, in all that's going on, in the way we conduct ourselves, in what we teach and what we preach. You see, he's shown us that he's a God of clarity and understanding, not of confusion and uncertainty. He's a God of order and decency, a God that brings peace and harmony, not chaos, not madness that people think that you've gone out of your head, not jealousy and division. These principles are God's principles. And he's teaching them to this church in the way that they're conducting themselves together. They should be a guiding principle for us in whatever that we're doing, in whatever part of our service that we're talking about. You see, I'll say this in closing this morning. You can't open the Bible and find an order of service. <laughs> Okay, here's your order of service when you come together as a church. You will sing this song and you will pray this prayer and you will do this and you will do that and at this point in time you'll do this and you'll do that. That's not the way God did it. Everybody's not going to do it the same way that we do it. He doesn't specify. But as we begin to look, what we're going to do over these next couple of weeks is we're going to look at, okay, what is the order of service that we follow as a congregation and why? And is there a biblical basis? Because I'm not ashamed to say that I don't think that we should just do what we want to do as long as God has said, or as long as God hasn't said, don't do it. <laughs> I believe that we should be regulated by the word of God, by his truth, 
and that according to that, that we should have a biblical basis for the way that we come together. But that when we come together, folks, one of the things I want you to grasp this morning, God himself is the one that should regulate us, not us. God himself is the one that should let us know if something is pleasing to him, if it's something that he likes or he doesn't like, exactly what like he's doing to the church here at Corinth. We should let God direct us. But I want you to know this. Number one, if you're here this morning, I've said this week after week, and I'll continue to say it. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning, you see, it was only when the Word of God came to the unlearned and the unbelievers. It was only when it changed their hearts that they were then able to worship God. Do you realize this evening or this morning, do you realize that you can't really, you can't really worship God? You can't really see Him in His splendor, in all that He is, the things that you do. They can't be in spirit and in truth if the spirit within you is still dead because you haven't been spiritually born again. You can't worship God in the flesh, in the nature. It's impossible. You can do a lot of religious things. But if you want to come in the presence of God, and if you want to adore him and everything that he is, then you've got to first come to know Jesus Christ. That's why this has got to remain the central focus of whatever we're doing. This has got to remain that part that is proclaimed forth, and we will look at that in some detail as we go through why and what it does and why it's God and, 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 and whether, whether it's the, the music or the prayers or the preaching or whatever it is, how does God regulate it and what is the purpose of it? Very few people get to experience today the awesomeness of really worshiping God. Once you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you see, God has given us ways. It's him that's building the church, and it's him that's put us together, and it's him that when we come together to worship him, we come together for other functions too, but we come together to worship him. I mean, he should have all of our attention. We should be so struck by all that he is and who that he is. And these things that we're doing should be helping to facilitate that, not taking from it today. Our times of coming together, they should be an awesome time that we come together and that, well, you're in the presence of God in a real and a mighty way. And he teaches us how we can do that. That's what we want to look at. We want to understand and know, wow, how can worship be meaningful to me? Not just some religious thing that I go, how can it really be meaningful? How can it be something that it's not I've got to, I've got to drag myself out and make myself go down there for another one of those dull, boring services at the church? This <laughs> is something that you, well, you can't wait to get here because you're going to come into the presence of God. You say, but God's everywhere. Yes. But folks, he's designed it. He built his church, and right the way through, he brings his people together, and he brings us together for specific purposes. And one of those things, Old Testament, New Testament, 
Even once we get there, we'll still be worshiping him in heaven, praise God. The thing is, he's told us how that can be meaningful. We don't need any more religious rituals. We need God to be in our midst and his presence to be such that we can't wait to come together, that we can't wait to worship him in a way that is his magnificence that we see. Not just those boring words that the preacher's saying, but the presence of God, his words that are coming through to us. That's what he wants for us, and that's what can be ours. Father, we thank you this morning for our time. And Lord, as we've tried to look at some of these guiding prints, we know, Lord, that, wow, when we look through your Bible, we look at all the things right the way through from the Old Testament right through to the, through the new of your people coming together in their worship of you. Lord, there's so much that could be said, but I pray that in these days that you'll help us. Lord, as we are considering the glorious church of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a part of that church. And Lord, one of the functions of that church is when we come together to worship you together. And Lord, your word has much to say about that. I pray for a couple of things specifically this morning. Lord, if there's anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Lord, help them not to get away from that fact. May your spirit convict them and show them they can't come into the presence of God because there's only one way to get there, and that's through Jesus, that they need Jesus Christ in their life. And Father, I pray that you would take, and as you speak to their hearts, Lord, that they would come to realize and understand that need. And secondly, Lord, I pray for each and every one as believers, and specifically this morning, those that are part of this fellowship, this church that you've put here. Lord, I pray that you'd help us. Help us to understand. Lord, as part of this church, as part of what we do together, the time of worship. And Lord, help us to, to grasp and to understand in a way to where that worship can truly be worshiped, that it can be, we can be true worshipers, that we'll truly worship in spirit and in truth in a way that is focused upon you, that brings glory and honor to you, Lord, in a way that truly as we worship you, as we stand before you in all of your splendor, Lord, that you'll have all of us, every bit of us, every thought and every part. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. 